What's up? This is Mike Fenoya from Amigos, and Amigos Podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Check out OsirisPod.com and stay in the loop. Sign up for the newsletter to learn about the newest podcasts and events. Relics Magazine is a media partner of Osiris. For music news, go to Relics.com. What up? Welcome back to Amigos, guys. It's Mike Fenoya. Hope everybody's doing good. I'm listening to some Fela Kuti in the background. Zombie. Zombie. Go check out Fela Kuti. Zombie, if you haven't heard it yet. Oh, man, it's amazing. Such good, funky music. African, horn-driven Really good stuff. Um, Guys, as always, thank you so much for listening to Amigos. Thanks for hanging out with me. Hope you guys are having a good time. If you are, head over to iTunes and uh, subscribe and share and like and rate and review. Um, I'm glad everybody enjoyed uh, the Tom Marshall interview that I did last week. It was really fun. Uh, We had a, a really amazing time chatting. And then we went to dinner at a really incredible restaurant run by a couple of uh, fish fans. Uh, It is called um, Don Angie, and it's in the West Village near Union Square. Uh, If you get off the 14th, I forget what what, uh, stop it is on the one train, but it's uh, right around, maybe it's just Union Square. Um, Such... An unbelievable restaurant. The food was out of this world, and we ate so much. Uh, they came out. They said hi. They got to, you know, they, they said their thanks to Tom, and uh, it was really just, just such an amazing meal. So if you're in New York and you're looking for good Italian cooking, head over to uh, Don Angie. Uh, thank you guys so much for having us. And then uh, Tom and RJ and the crew uh, came to Gotham Comedy Club. And watched a really fun show called Comedy Juice. Uh, we had, man, it was what a stacked lineup. We had, uh, I, I was on the show, which, I mean, what else do you need, really? Just kidding. My pal Dan Soder from The Bonfire on Sirius XM and Showtime's Billions. Uh, Nikki Glazer. Uh, we had Jessica Curson, one of my best friends in the world, best friends in comedy. Sal Volcano from Impractical Jokers, another one of my best pals. And uh, Jim Gaffigan from his many specials uh, popped in and did a spot. So I was happy to uh, – it's always great when, when people come in to New York and I'm able to you know bring them to a comedy show and we have a good time. And uh, 
what a what a fun filled day, and I was able to break Tom's balls just a smidge, um, and it, and it was really fun. You know what's great about chatting with uh, people who have insight on things that you really appreciate is, you know, learning about the origins of you know maybe some of your favorite songs or what inspired this painting or what inspired this you know movie or joke. It's really fun to kind of. You know, just just in conversation, you know, people ask about jokes and it's like, yeah, I was just I thought of that when I was doing this or when I was doing that. And it's funny to go back and think about, wow, like I thought so much went into this. I thought that there was this master plan to make this album sound like that. And really, then you just learn like, oh, yeah, it's just the creative process. It's just going for it. And, uh, you know, good things will happen when you, uh, you know, put a pen to paper and try to, you know, make art. So. Thank you, Tom, for all of the uh, time, and thanks to all the listeners. Uh, today I've got on the podcast um, bringing you an interview I did a while back with uh, Noam Dwarman, the owner of The Comedy Cellar, uh, which I will get into in a second. I've got a lot of comedy dates coming up on the road, a lot of stuff in New York City, so head to MikeFinoia.com, that's M-I-K-E-F-I-N-O-I-A.com for all of my dates. I'm going to be traveling out to Denver, Colorado. I'm going to be down in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, thinking about making a trip out to California pretty soon to do some shows. So stay on the website and stay on social media at Mike Fenoya and at Amigos Pod for uh, information about my shows. Uh, before I get into Gnome and before I get into the seller and the podcast interviewed for today, um, fuck Ticketmaster with everything I have. God, what an absolutely awful, awful experience this past weekend was. Now, for those of you who are lucky enough to not uh, every single time Fish announces a tour have fun anxiety. I call it fun anxiety because it's like, yeah, life could be worse, right? Like I, we could be worrying about how we're going to keep the lights on or, or feed our kids or whatever. But what we're panicked about is, you know, what, what tricks does Ticketmaster have up their sleeve, uh, to make our life that much more difficult. Now I've been going to shows for a long time. I talk about it all the time on the pod and it only gets more frustrating and more difficult as time goes on. I miss the days when I could drive to the local mall and sit outside of, uh, you know, Filene's. And, and the earlier you get there, the better chance you are of having good tickets. And the more, uh, you know, effort and the more, um, you know, you're responsible for, for the seat you get. You call early. You wait in line. You, you know, it... it this year with, with Ticketmaster and with dealing with trying to get tickets to these shows, it, it, it makes you almost just want to not go. And, it, and it's so frustrating that a company that's that big, basically what they did, for those of you who didn't experience it, was you got in this pre-queue, P-R-E-Q-U-E-U-E or some. I hate the cue and I also hate the word. Um, it, you got in it and then it didn't matter if you were – if you got in it the, the night before or you got in it 30 seconds before. You were just kind of thrown into this random line of people and the fucking website, you got to go through a luminosity puzzle to prove that you're not a, a bot. 
a bot, a ticket bot. And what that is is like, you know, scalpers supposedly set up these robots that grab all the tickets and then put them on StubHub for, you know, quadruple the price when actually Ticketmaster is the biggest bot of them all because now they have a resale page where you can get verified tickets. And really, it's just them filtering their own tickets right back into their system so they could double dip on people. And you're just sent into this queue. Now, you have to sit there and you have to wait and wait and wait. And then when it comes, the page comes up and says, hey, you've got two tickets in section 103, row one, seat A and B. And I hit, yeah, I'll take them. And then it just refreshes to, oh, those seats were taken. Your tickets got moved to this section. Do you want them? Oh, your tickets got moved to this section. Five, six times. Then the thing just freezes. I'm on the phone trying it. I'm on I'm online trying it. It's a bunch of garbage. And the whole situation and the whole way that it's handled is complete garbage. And, you know, I really, really wish that Fish would realize the power that they have and just release all tickets through their own vehicle, through their own engine. Why don't you give cash or trade a ta- a, 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 an opportunity to try to run a ticket on sale instead of, you know, there are ways to work around these giant corporations that make everything difficult for everybody. And I'm sick and tired of it. So I'm about to step off my soapbox, but what was your garbage experience with Ticketmaster? Let me know. Amigospod at gmail.com. God, I'm fired up. I hate it. I used to use my tricks and, and, and it's, man, it just is so frustrating. Okay, let's all take a deep breath. Let me a sip of some dark roast coffee. Gnome Dorman. Gnome is someone who I'm really honored to know. And and Gnome owns the Comedy Cellar, the Village Underground, the Fat Black Pussycat, the Comedy Cellar in Las Vegas. And he has a very interesting past in music. His father, Manny, owned Cafe Wa, the Cafe Fiend John, a couple other clubs in Greenwich Village in its heyday in the nineteen early 1960s when uh, the folk music boom happened. And Gnome, one day I was sitting with him chatting at the cellar when I first started working there, and uh, we just started to you know rap about music. And uh, that's something that I've always found that most of the people nearest and dearest to my heart, I'm able to talk music with. And uh, Noam fits right into that category. And I wanted to know what it was like growing up in that time, uh, what his you know, introduction to music was. Growing up in New York City, um, growing up around all these talented people, and now you know, he, he is an unbelievably talented musician. So... I've talked about it quite a bit on the on the pod, but the Comedy Cellar, the original Comedy Cellar, is located on 3rd and McDougal in the West Village, uh, right off the F train, a block away from the Christopher Street stop on the 1 train, and upstairs from the Comedy Club is the Olive Tree Cafe, which is a restaurant, Mediterranean restaurant. They've got great food. Uh, it's where you know we kind of all hang out while waiting to go on stage. There is music Fridays and Saturday nights, and it's Gnome and his band, and they are out of this world talented. And it's so neat to see people that are either 
after a show, waiting for a show, maybe got shut out of a comedy show. We're in the waiting line to get in and, you know, tickets, every show at the cellar sells out. So um, they go upstairs and they listen to, you know, they grab a drink and they listen to the band. And it's so um, timeless and it's so enjoyable to go hang out and listen to them play. Sometimes people will pop up out of the, you know, restaurant booths or tables and grab the microphone and sing. It's just a celebration, and it's uh, really a perfect companion to the comedy room that is the comedy cellar. So we go through Noam's history with mu- uh, with music and, uh, you know, what inspired him, who he'd like to play with, things like that. And uh, we talk about Tom Petty. We talk about a lot of stuff, Prince. So... Enjoy the interview. Uh, as always, guys, head to um, Amigos Pod. Follow us on all the social media. And do me a favor and go check out all of the great, great podcasts on the Osiris Network. No Simple Road, uh, Beyond the Pond, Female Centric, Fear of a Craft Beer Planet, Under the Scales, uh, Inside Out. You name it. There are so many great podcasts. I mean, I'm only naming a few. But... Uh, Go check out all the great uh, podcasts on Osiris Network. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy the episode. Next week, I am going to be on the Impractical Joker Cruise, so I'll probably be bringing you an old episode. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'm going to tape a bunch of great interviews with the people that are on the boat, and I'll bring that to you uh, in two weeks. So thank you guys. Stay warm, and we'll catch you on the flip. Peace. I want to talk to you about music. I want to talk to you about growing up. You had the, uh, I'm jealous of the fact that you had the chance to grow up here in Greenwich Village around such an incredible music scene with your father being involved in things and with, you know, just, I would love to know what it was like being a kid running around the West Village in such an amazing, you know, hot time in music. Well, I didn't really get to see... I was too young to see the, all the, the big acts in the 60s, but I was aware of them all. But I'll tell you this, at McDougal Street now, like on a, on a weekends in when I was a kid, you could not walk down the street. It was, it was really, really the center of the world. And the crowds were just enormous. Really? Yeah. And... Um, and what, what, like around what time period, you said in the 60s? Like 60, well, like 68, 69, yep. 67 maybe. And how old were you at that point? I was like five, six years five, old. Five, six years yeah. old, But wow. I remember it. And then my father, of course, he knew Dylan. And he, he, Dylan used to play in my father's coffee shop, and my father never cared for Dylan. Really? Yeah, and, and he, and he it's so much so that when I would play Bob Dylan when I was a kid, like I had to hope my father didn't hear it. And... <laughs> He was so he was so anti Dylan that when like when somebody said, "But Blowing in the Wind" is a good song," he says, "I don't really believe he wrote that song." No, people <laughs> yeah. want to give him the credit for the he, song. He really That's incredible because wow. he he just saw Bob Dylan as as his just guy with a lousy voice out on McDougal Street just banging on the guitar, you know. And and my father came from a family of classical musicians, and it wasn't easy for him to appreciate the the, the musical validity. Of something that appeared to be so unskilled in a way, you know. Folk music in general not, or just Dylan? Not folk music in general because even folk music, 
he, he liked, but like Bob Dylan was like really just hack, like his harmonica playing. It's like, yeah, you know, he's just hacking at his instruments, yeah, hacking at the guitar, like no, no sign of any kind of real, um, to, to my father's ear. Yeah. He, he, he couldn't see past that. Wow. But he, but he would hear a Dylan song out of someone else's mouth and say, oh, that's a nice song. And he said, that's Bob Dylan. He goes, all right. <laughs> I didn't want to hear it. Now, let's back up to you. And Peter, you Paul, and Mary, he knew. He knew a lot. Jose Feliciano. He came from a uh, classically trained musical family? Yes. How, how big was the family? Small, small. My, um, my, father's, my father's family came to the United States because his uncle, was, who was a child prodigy, was the concert master of the NBC Orchestra, which at that time was in a very important position. And, they did, you know, he was the... The first violinist for countless famous recordings. Wow! And they would record with Sinatra or whatever it is. So he, and uh, so he was able to bring the rest of the family over from Israel. No kidding. So my father, my grandfather's a violinist. I'm sorry, my gra- my grand my grandfather's brother, my great uncle was a violinist, and my grandfather was a cellist. And my father didn't play classically, but he loved and knew classical music. He loved new classical music. He loved and knew it. Loved and knew classical yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. So for him to get involved in such a beatnik kind of scene, I mean, he owned the coffee shop way before the scene found the West Village, though, right? Uh, I mean, not or did way he... before. I mean, he was really right in the center, but he he used he knew Leonard Cohen. They used to take road trips. He was he was he had been uh, roommates with Lou Gossett, I believe. Really? Yeah. Um, he uh, as I said, he he him and Shel Silverstein. You know the, the yeah. Poet, oh yeah, absolutely. We're, we're very good friends. I remember Shel Silverstein when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, Shel Silverstein somewhere, he he did a cartoon of me, and he into one of his cartoon books, he added me into the really book there. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember how old you were around that time? Five, four, six, thirty, thirty-five years old. Yeah. <laughs> so you know he he was he had one foot in all of it, and then he know. Um, Felix Popolardi, who was, uh, you know, became the producer for Cream and was a great bass player, was in my father's band for a while. Worked So even he even had some experience with some of these musicians who went on to play with Clapton and people right. like that. Right. Now, when you say your father's band, but he didn't play music. No, he didn't play classical music. He played guitar. He my, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, up through the 80s, my father owned a Middle Eastern nightclub called the Cafe Finjan. Okay. We can see the band on YouTube, and they were fantastic. They're very, very famous all over the world, really. Wow. And, and where was that located? Right, right out here. Where the cafe was now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and for a while down in the comedy cellar. Really? Yeah. Okay. And he played guitar in that. He played guitar in oud, which is like a round back. Yes. Arabic yes, band. the oud, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so when you were a kid, um, he was always playing in the house. Music was always on. It always. was something always that you playing. were always... I used to tell my, my friends in kindergarten that my father was a magician. A magician? Because <laughs> you couldn't say musician? That. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. I, couldn't, I could say it. I just, I just didn't hear the difference. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like, like he was... Ne- that, that's what he was first. The, the reason that, that that kind of means something to me is that from my perception of what he did, even though he owned the coffee shop, he owned the nightclub, that, that he was a musician was really what he was. Yeah, because that's, that's where the I'm, passion lies. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like he maybe opened up a place to have a, a space to play in and front get, of people? And, and to get laid. Those and are, to get laid. But that's what he says, yeah. That, that's what he said? Yeah, yeah. And to get laid. He was well, a taxi sure. driver prior to that. Really? Yeah. So when he came over with the family, he basically just needed to find something to do. No, he came well. over at eight years old. 
But, but because his brother was this prodigy. His uncle. His uncle was the prodigy. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's complicated. <laughs> it really is. Everybody's getting laid, driving cabs, hating Dylan. But, you know, I mean, it's an aside that, that you know, um, it, at that time, you could drive a taxi, and from the money that you could make drive a taxi, hope to open a business in Greenwich yeah. Village. And Greenwich Village wasn't a, wasn't a crappy area even then. And that idea is totally out of the question now. Right. Com- totally and completely out of the question. And that loss of the ability to, to, to make the transition from a, you know, kind of a so-so job to becoming an entrepreneur is really one of the things we're really suffering from in the country. That's why there's not upward mobility like there used to be. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's just now with, I mean, th- there will never, I wonder with any president, no matter what, Will there ever be that ability to go down in price to a point where the next, you know, person that wants to come over, drive a cab until they can open up a coffee shop? Like, can it ever be afforded? No, No, because at least not in this city. That's the problem. The 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 costs of of regulations, well-intentioned as they are, and they save lives and, and whatever they are. But the, the cost of entry now to get into a business, I can't believe they're that much cheaper anywhere in the country, maybe. Maybe someplace like Texas are cheaper. Yeah. But really, just with the inspections and the all the things you have to buy, and it, you, you can't do it. Yeah. Let's step back to, it's, it's, you're five years old, you're running around the West Village here, yeah. and you can't even get down the street. People are just crammed into places. Was it... Um, just was it the college scene? Was it the music scene? Was it tourists coming in? A combination of everything? It wasn't the college scene that I remember. It was a hippie scene. Like, my guy, bringing back memories. I remember, like, because I really, this was really right in the, the, the thick of the hippie scene. I remember seeing black eyes with huge afros and, you know, <laughs> and uh, Harry Krishnas and all that. And, and then somebody would say to my father, hey, man, what's your bag? And, and I would say, I don't speak hippie talk. That's like, what you would say? say yeah. <laughs> Your little kid mouthing yeah, off the hippies? Yeah. That's amazing. I don't speak hippie talk. There's this great documentary on Netflix about Greenwich Village in the 60s, yeah. and it, it really seemed to be, and I'd love your thoughts on it, a place where, you know, people hear these jokes about kind of like vagabonds getting in a VW and heading to Greenwich Village. Oh, it's true. And then they would just show up, and a bunch of people would, like, cram as many folks as they can into an apartment, and they would stay as long as they wanted and then kind of hit the road. It, it it really it was, was. It was really exactly that. I mean, it, it was, it 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 was it, it was exactly what the 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 parody of it is. It was just a bunch of hippies and people with long hair, and talking funny, acting funny. It was great music. Love and Spoonful was playing around the corner, and Dylan and H- Hendrix was never a mainstay in the village, but of course he was discovered here at the at, at the Cafe Wa. Yeah, correct? discovered yeah. the Cafe Wa. Um, but there were countless, obviously, musicians that came out of the the 60s here and uh it was it was fun for a kid you know and and it was safe it was it was a safe neighborhood that was going to be my next question was there was it you felt like you were i mean this was your you were living here at the time right i I was living on uh, 100th street but but i was here all the time you were here all the time yeah um did you 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 felt like you could just run around and it wasn't a big deal at all there there was Yeah. yeah but then it changed faster than anything I'd ever seen. And by 1971 or so, that scene was dead, and it was all junkies. Yeah. I mean, the, the village became just heroin and junkies, and it was, it was a horrible scene for a while. 
It seems very similar to Haight Ashbury's timeline, where it was almost, you know, after that summer of love and all those, you hear about George Harrison going to visit Haight Ashbury, and he was so disappointed because he thought, here's this like San Francisco love in being seen, and it's just a bunch of like old, strung out ex hippies that are. Yeah. Now, by old, I mean maybe 20s, but yeah. still, that time was done. That scene was over. Um, New York always tended to. Like, I'm fascinated by the history of New York musically because the West Village had a thing. The East Village had a thing. Times Square had a thing. It seemed like all Harlem was the hotbed of jazz. Um, when you started to get into your teenage years, did you tend to, like, gravitate towards any other areas of the city musically? or No. It, it, my, my teenage years, um, I was not hanging out. You know, um, I was at school in high school, and um, I wasn't spending a lot of time hanging out in clubs or anything like that. I was uh, I would go to see concerts at the Garden, you know, like the Stones or the old John. Garden. Uh, yeah, no, it was it's, it's the same Garden. Oh no, no, this is the same, it's this Garden, not not the old one. Not garden. the old one, no. okay. Um, hey, can I get Pellerino, please? Um, so I would see a lot of, you know, big stadium acts. Uh, but I I didn't go to to small clubs. What was the first mu- I know growing up it's hard to Except say. For my father's club. To your father's club, you wouldn't. No, I would see. I would see his band play all the time. You know. Right. Yeah. What was the first music that when like you sought out yourself? Like was rock and roll the thing that really kicked your ass first, or was there? No, I, I can remember. Like I I I had like I so I, I kind of grew up in an anti rock and roll home, so I didn't really get into it until I was already maybe eleven years old, and then I I. Join the Columbia Record Club. They still have, you know, that yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. What that turned into, and you probably remember this, was with CDs. When the BMG and the Columbia House, you we'd get the Sunday paper, and it would have. That's amazing that this comes up again. Where basically you'd have twelve CDs for a penny. Yeah. But you could only get one account under a name. So we used to like make accounts under our dog's name and our like uh. shitty neighbor's name and. uh just get all the different CDs that would come. But, yeah, that's Columbia House. Absolutely. The best. I mean, listen. My sweetheart. This, was, this is something you probably can't explain to anybody unless you lived through it. But when we were kids, music was a precious commodity. Like, you would read about that there was some Beatles song, like, There's a Place. But being able to listen to it was a challenge like because it would be on some album that not everybody had and you, you couldn't there was no so the idea of being able to get 12 records yeah i mean this was this was huge like you know like I mean, I can, I, and you, even to find a record like i remember going to records do you think they'll have it can they order it you know it was yeah. very very tough to get music you had to seek it out and and i think that one thing that is lost and it's it's sad there's no more there's no more longing you basically can, the minute you want something, you can have everything that that artist ever made Instantly. in some form, whether it's Spotify, whether it's YouTube, Pandora, uh, you name it, or iTunes. Or BitTorrent. I mean, it, it, or BitTorrent, yeah. and it's stolen, and you can, right, exactly. That, where, stealing? I, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of feel like it is sometimes. I mean, as a, no, as a performer, is, I, yeah, 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 it would piss me off. That, but, um, but, um, but, but come on, as a performer. Nothing hurts more than when nobody steals your material. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's actually kind of the first time I saw one of my tracks from my album on YouTube. I'm like, this is a good sign. Ah. All right. Yeah, people want to hear it. Um, 
So, so they can steal, but not too much. When you did, you have like a, a, a group of buddies that you would kind of huddle around and listen to music with, or were you kind yeah. of an individual? Or so I was, I guess, yeah. So I no. Well, I was always I was always pretty individual in my taste of music. But so my first Columbia Record House thing, I can remember a lot of this was uh, songs in the key of life, um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Gratitude, Jim Croce's uh, greatest hits. I think the Carpenters' greatest hits. Um, there was some some uh, songs of the '70s compilation, mm-hmm. but um, the Beatles the Beatles weren't available in Columbia. Uh, n- none of the Apple McCartney none of the, none of that stuff was available. They were always on their own thing. Yeah, but I can remember putting on for the first time songs in the key of life, and you know, and and just exploding like I just never it just blew heard your mind. anything like. It. Oh, the sound, soundtrack, the sound of music was one of the ones I I got. Okay, yeah. yeah. Songs in the Key of Life is such a phenomenal album. It's just incredible. Really, just start to finish, just one of those. Yeah. It, it's a, it's like a book where if you skip a chapter, you miss the point. And uh, growing up on on one hundredth, you said, yeah. So that in your neighborhood, would yes. you would you start to venture out and check out like, you know, when jazz started to, you know. I was never I was never really into jazz except for um, Brazilian like Stan Getz. Did that famous album with Antonio Carlos Jobim, mm-hmm. with that introduced "Girl from Ipanema." That I that I loved, but it's something like like you know like uh, you know Charlie Parker, bebop stuff like that. Uh, way way later was I able to appreciate that, and yeah. even now I'm it's not it's not I'm the not biggest deal. Appreciating it, no. Were you into like when funk started to become a thing? Um, yeah. I was into funk, but um, not like the hardcore. I was into the funk that was. More melodic, more like where the songs were um, more interesting to me, like Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh-huh. Or, or I was a huge Sly Stone fan. Yeah. Like huge. Huge. Because Sly Stone to me was funk, but overlaid with like a melodic kind of Beatles thing. Yeah. So, so the Beatles were always a favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's having a show and talking about music, it's inevitable the Beatles are going to come up. Well, you know, I was having, John Mayer was here, and we were talking about, I said, what's the, what's, what are the best bands ever? And he's like, I think the, he said, I think the Grateful Dead, this is before he was playing with this, he said, I think the Grateful Dead are the greatest band ever. Agreed. And I said, <laughs> I said, really, better than the Beatles? He says... I think you have to remove the Beatles from any conversation like this. <laughs> it's true. Everything is just so... Because it, it, it just makes it no fun. It really, yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> when I interviewed Ken Kesey, we had a conversation about when he brought the Grateful Dead to see the Beatles at the Cow Palace in San Fran, or outside of, out in, wherever it was in Cali. I think it was San Francisco. And they had all taken acid. And they were watching from afar, the fans watch the Beatles. And the minute... That the lights went down and the and the, the 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 house lights went down and the stage lights went up and the guys took the stage and kind of leapt up there and we're all. They said that the dead were taken aback by how fast and like venomous and animalistic the crowd approached the stage and it scared them as performers and they said we don't ever want to be that big like we don't want that power over the audience where so I think that gave them the idea of setting up a space where you know let's play these larger fields in the middle of oregon or let's do 
you know, Watkins Glen with the band and the Allman Brothers and 300,000 people. But didn't could the dead have some association with the Hell's Angels at some point? Yeah, absolutely. And in the, the early Angels because killed... of the acid test and stuff. Well, that was Altamont. Right. That was, and that was the Stones. And no, but, they, they, but they were still kind of in the. The dead were there. Yeah, but the dead, like Pigpen, the original keyboard player, was a biker and was celebrated by the Hell's Angels. And he was an old blues guy. In fact, when Pigpen died, Jerry was like, the dead is no is done. We're it's not done. doing it anymore. Because Pigpen was the lead man. He was the guy that would get out, play the harmonica, and do, like, Lightning Hopkins songs like Smokestack Lightning and Hard to Handle and a lot of these, like, old blues tunes. Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. Like, those, you know. You know, there's a whole, like, there's, I don't know the details of them, but I'm aware of, like, Sid Barrett died in Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And who knew that their best days were ahead of them. Right. And uh, someone else, oh, when uh, Peter Gabriel left Genesis, like, they can't find a singer. Phil Collins says, I'll do it. Yeah, you know? it's really and, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching the uh, last night, stupidly, and I don't, I don't even know why I say stupidly. It's just one of the, I watched Tom Petty's documentary again, Running Down a Dream. Yeah, I've been wanting to watch that now since he died. Have you watched it yet? I watched it. You years, watched it once years, before. Oh, I don't, it's very, very long, right? I don't think I watched it. It's so thing. damn long, yeah, and it's, long. Uh, yeah, I'll be honest, it's kind of like, what a charmed career. There's no struggle. He he grew up in Gainesville, Florida. He he had an amazing voice, the ability to write a perfect, short, poppy, but like energetic, angry rock song in a time where nine minute bat like you know bands were just stretching out songs, whatever. But uh, he went out there with his his guys, and right when he got there, they were like, "You got to cut the band. We want you. We don't want the band." And then he found the Heartbreakers and put like kind of piecemealed them together. So you're right. It is interesting. The Grateful Dead lost three keyboard players over the course of their 30-year span. Now, I have um, a, you know, the Dead The Dead was on my radar, and, and I know you love the Dead. And, like, I had American Beauty and stuff like that. But, okay, so I had some best friends in in high school, and one of them, his name is Doug Berman. He, he went on to be one of the creators in Car Talk and NPR, and he, yeah. and he invented Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he became a pretty important person. And and we were all friends and musicians. And then, like, one summer, him and a few of my other friends discovered the dead. And with the dead came all dead things, you know, whether, whether it's LSD or whatever. I mean, you know, and, and it split friends apart because, yeah. because I liked it. I enjoyed some of it. But I could not become just like I couldn't. The Grateful Dead couldn't become my life, you know. It's something Jerry even said. He goes, the dead is like licorice. You either you love it or you hate it. And uh, it's true. It's a weird thing. And that, for me, translated over to Fish because I never got the chance to see the dead. But Fish was kind of the New England alternative where I could go see 12, 16, 20 shows a year without going like two hours from my house. So, um, but it's interesting you bring up Mayer saying that, you know, the Grateful Dead... Yeah, was. he was he was wearing his Grateful Dead sweat. Like, he loved the Dead, and I think because he loved them so much, he kind of managed to connect with them. And he's actually the perfect guitar player for that. I haven't seen it yet. You've seen it. I mean, he's he like he was really studying. That he's like like putting himself in the mind of Jerry Garcia in terms of not copying his licks, but just not to, at to, all that vibe to to because to, 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 Mayer is a guy. I don't know what Garcia is. I know Garcia was play bluegrass and but i don't know his knowledge of like outside scales and jazz and stuff like that but mayor can play with herbie hancock mayor really has all that knowledge with a lot of musicians who have 
an enormous amount of knowledge. Yeah. It's very hard for them to stay true to just one genre and sound authentic within a style. You're right. And, and Garcia was a, a student of music, and they would listen to, like, old McCoy Tyner and old jazz. And, I mean, they were huge students of music. And you could tell in their playing where they would, like, drop into, like, a very weird ambient jam that would go into a certain place. And then the next song would be Big River mm-hmm. by Johnny Cash. Or, you know, they would write. They, they were very um, tapped into American music whether Americana, it be yeah. old bluegrass or whether it be black music or whether it be the bayou you know whatever so it i think that's one of the things i love about that band is that you're not getting you know with tom petty you're getting what you're getting you're getting a a, a simple rock and roll song that is probably at the most three to four chords there's not a lot of intricacies it's probably three minutes long okay but tom, tom petty is a superior songwriter to almost anybody. In what sense? They're, they're, like, when you write songs, you, like, I've seen, I've heard people, I've heard, there was an article about somebody very famous, I don't remember, who was in the Wall Street Journal, if you Google it, you could find it, and he's talking about, it, says, and he has a list of things that he goes through for songwriting, and then one of the lists in, like, his seven things to do, he says, says, what would Tom Petty do? Like, yeah. this huge, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of, they, they, they um, I mean, ev- everyone. First of all, they're de- very they're deceptively simple. They're not that simple. They're they're much more complex than you would give them credit for. It's true. There's there's a limited number of chords in most of them, but that doesn't make them simple. No, I don't mean that in that way. What I meant was like you know you, you take a Grateful Dead or an Almond Brothers, or even a Yes or someone that's no, going to yes, stretch a yeah, fifteen yeah, twenty whatever. Yeah. Grateful. Look at Mountain Jam on Ada Peach. The Almond's thirty five minutes. Tom Petty's not going to do a 35-minute song. He's no. going to stick to a, a uh, you know, a, 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 a template. And I was reading... Yeah, but can, just, but can I tell you something? Yeah. This is what I think. Those bands that do those 35-minute jams, they would give a year of their life to be able to write those songs. <laughs> then, yeah. they can, then they can do with them what they want. Well, but in the end, the Allman Brothers, how much mileage did they get out of Melissa... Ramblin' Man yep. and Jessica. Post. Uh, Whip and Post. Yep. I wouldn't even say Whip and Post was a great jam, but it's not, a, it's not like a, I guess it's a pretty good song, but not like a song that um, people all sing along. Blue Sky. Blue I know Sky. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's really. Yeah. Where the Grateful Dead had like Uncle John's Band or right. Touch of Grey. I know what you mean. Yeah. And those, Tom Petty. Those are their Tom Petty Tom songs. Petty shit out those like you could uh, hear, as an you afterthought. Could hear, you could hear Uncle John's Band as a Tom Petty song. Absolutely, yeah. And it was interesting watching the documentary about Petty where he said when he got to the third album, Damn the Torpedoes, where that's the real pressure of, you know, we want to prove to the world that we're, we, we have staying power. We're worth investing your you know, ears and heart and whatever into. And that had Refugee and, and American Girl and a lot of these other, you know, like such phenomenal songs. And while I'm watching the documentary and, the past couple of days I've been listening to. I, I don't think there's a better song than American Girl. No, it's great. Like, it's just right off the bat. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It really doesn't. But he's also not breaking the mold of, like, it, it's, it still sounds within a genre, but totally original within that pop rock genre. It really is. Yeah, he, he was incredible. And, and, and you knew that he had the respect of his peers because I still think of the Travel and Wilburys as, like, the, the all-star team band. Right. You know, I mean, you've got the best from every site. And then just to have, like, Roy Orbison and Dylan in that mix. Was it Jeff Lynn? Jeff Lynn, yeah. Harrison, Tom Petty, 
Uh, they're phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, their songs aren't the greatest, but a lot of them I mean, are good. there's some end of the lines, one of the, you know, just just really killer. But um, everybody, uh, what, uh, what song is that? That's somebody. Yep. What song is that? No, I'm no. so tired of it. Roy Orbison's got one of. I, re- My, uh, uh, I don't. I don't know the name of handle it. Handle with care. Handle me with care. Handle with care. Is that handle what it is? Care. Yeah, yeah. I met Roy Orbison's son in Nashville, and I called him Boy Orbison, and he didn't like it very much. Yeah, and it wasn't. <laughs> that's nothing I'm very proud of. I figured I'd tell you. So, um, what was one of you? So you, big arena shows. You used to check out a lot of stuff at the car. What were ticket prices like when you were going to shows? Do you have any recollection? No, I, I grew up. I grew up privileged. But uh, I know. What do you mean by that? Well, Just wealth, that, like that, price didn't matter. Price. I mean, I, I, first of all, but in general life, I didn't know what things cost. My father's complaining I didn't know the, the, the value of money. However, the arena shows. My best friend uh, for most of my life, John Engel. His father was the cover editor of Newsweek magazine, which at that time was an extremely important position. Uh, this is during the Watergate times. He, I would see. A lot of covers, which are now like iconic covers, he would have the artwork that he was working on in the apartment during that. So, but being the cover editor of Music Magazine, he could get tickets to any show that he wanted. And you were always his plus one or so plus three. So would, he would take us kids, yeah, to see Elton John, Paul McCartney. Uh, but I remember the one time I, I didn't, I got in trouble. I, get, I wasn't a good student in high school, and my father always punished me, but he would never stick to his punishment, and. <clears throat> The, the one time uh, he stuck to his, puni- his punishment, I was not able to go see Led Zeppelin oh, shit. perform during the song Remains the Same. Oh, no, really? Yeah, he stuck, so I didn't get to see that. God, that's terrible. He, al- he, almost, he almost didn't let me go see The Stones. But I remember saying to him, you know, this is mid to late 70s, I was like, Daddy, you don't understand. This is probably the last time they're ever going to tour. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. That is so funny. Yeah. And as people thought that at the time, right. how much longer can no, they go on? Uh, yeah, like 10 years after the Beatles had broken up. Like. Unbelievable. That's crazy. <laughs> Do you remember um, the energy at the... I, I, would, I would love to... I would love to have been at like a, a, a like an early Elton John or a Paul McCartney show at the Garden to like be able to go into that. The, like the Elton the, John show the, was... This is, this is right when Captain Fantastic came out, I guess. Or maybe right before that. Goodbye, Elder Road was... No, it was a Goodbye, Elder Road tour. It was, it's, I, the, John Lennon famously sat in with Elton John yeah. on Thanksgiving night. This was the day after. We went the day after. Okay. And... It was the greatest concert I'd ever seen in my life. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, it was the closest I've ever seen to a Beatle-like craze among the crowd. This was Elton. For Elton John. Yeah, El- Elton John was, nobody's ever as big as the Beatles were. But he was in that range, like what Michael Jackson became, like hysteria. Yeah. And this was before he had jumped the shark musically at all. He's like, really, really everything, all his hits, these are all masterpieces. Yeah, yeah. Just straight and, up rock and roll. Yeah, and it, it was just, I mean, it, I can vividly remember it. It was really, 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 really good. Okay. So I remember seeing Paul, Paul McCartney a couple of years after that, and it was good, but nothing like Elton John. Was it just a free-for-all in the garden at that time? Like, was it general admission? Were there seats? No, no, was the it, seats. People would smoke weed, but there, there were seats. I think I have this weird, like, and, and thinking about it now, it would be hell on earth to be there, but I have this, like, this this kind of, like, fantasy of concerts in the past just being like a complete like you go to these old like 
arena, like hockey rink, like AHL places, like the New Haven Coliseum was a place that I saw my first concerts. And, you know, it was just this kind of cold, dank place where, you know, once the show went on, it was a, a, a it was magic. But all the rest, you know, just beer and shit all no, over the, the garden, floors. The garden shows were always pretty civilized. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. I loved Captain Fantastic. I also tumbleweed collect. Tumbleweed connection, Tumbleweed connection, yeah. Probably, I think that's probably my favorite uh, Elton John. I, that, I album. like that album. That's a, that album has a, is a moody album. It's kind of like Americana again. Again, he's like yeah. old West themes. Yeah, it has Amarino, which is a really good song. And, my uh, father's gone. Mission, my father. But that's not my favorite Elton John. I know that album. Where but, to now, St. Peter is, is a great tune on that. And then album. after that is um, Madman Across the Water, which is a little bit more commercial, but it has you know Tiny Dancer. And Levon, but it's also kind of a vibe and moody. Yeah, and but, and then he started doing these huge with Honky Chateau and well, it's amazing. I remember the names of these records. Don't shoot me. Yeah, we came out with Daniel and Crocodile Rock and Honky Cat and and it just Rocket became Man. larger than life. And then Go by Elbert Road and Saturday Night's for Fighting. I mean, and Benny and the Jets and it was boom, 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 boom. And yeah. every one of these songs has stood the test of time. Yep. Which I was just telling somebody recently. Which really. I know that that it's difficult to like art is totally objective, suppose subjective. Nevertheless, it's hard to believe that uh, the Mona Lisa has just as much validity as like a, a velvet painting of Elvis. Uh, you know, it's just, <laughs> I know it's, it's just in the eyes of the beholder. You know, so there's got to be something else. But I, yeah, it's I, just th- like comedy. It's just like, but I I think that the ultimate test is actually mass appeal with. The, the, that can stand the test of time. Something I mean, that transcends generations, yeah. I think, is a pretty neat thing. You know, like, uh, it, it's, I mean, growing up in the 90s when grunge and, and all that, you know, I was I was born in 79, so the 80s music was, to me, I didn't get it. I paid, I wasn't paying attention. I was listening to The Who oh, to impress huge, my dad. Huge Who fan. Quadrophenia huge. was the first, when everybody else was singing NWA and Ice Cube and 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 rap like gangster rap first started kind of I memorized Quadrophenia start to finish to impress my dad like I I music for me was something that like I had nothing to talk to him about so I went to the albums I could listen to which was The Stones and Bad Company and Steely Dan and the the Who and Zeppelin and all that and I would memorize it and I remember playing with the album covers, and I was jealous of... Quadrophenia has that big book in it, too. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was huge. And and I watched the movie at a very young age, even though he didn't really want me to, because there were uh, boobs on the wall when, uh, you know, he when, when they would show the kid's bedroom. Um, but to me, it was something that was... I wished I was there when it when it was fresh and new, but then I got to a point where I realized, like... It doesn't matter. Like it's new to me right now, and it's 1990, and I'm listening to Quadrophenia on vinyl, and it's it's so it's weird now to hear people like considering Nirvana classic rock or Pearl Jam classic rock because I guess it is because it, it, it it's mind boggling to think that it's 25 to 30 years old. Yeah, I, I can't believe that Nirvana is 25 years old. Isn't it's it crazy? Like new stuff is coming. Isn't amazing? Green Day is in the Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame. Like that's to me is is mind blowing. But that's in the, the blink thi- of an eye. Yeah, and it, and it's there's still hundreds of thousands of people going to see them, and now, it's pretty. Col- Cobain to me is the best by far of all that generation. 
like if Nirvana I, if, or him? Nirvana, but I mean, he, he, but he's the real his songwriting. But the records too. But okay, to 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 my ear, his songwriting stands head and shoulders above all the rest of the songwriting of of his genre and his time. Okay, those he's his his songs are amazing to me because again they're very melodic. You you could do um, orchestral arrangements of a lot of these Nirvana songs, and people would take them as legit melodies in, in almost any style. Gotcha, yeah, you know, he, I hear you. He, he packages them in, in this kind of grunge rock with these, you know, explosive dynamics and the guitars, whatever it is. But those melodies, they're, they're, he's, he was really, really, to me, he was really, really gifted. Yeah, he was, the, Nirvana was, was a band that, uh, growing up in that time, you know how there's always that, like, you're, you're too cool to like a certain band in, in a certain era? I don't know, yeah, I felt like... my friends was the Bee Gees. Was that who it was? Yeah. The Nirvana was our BGs then. Oh, yeah. Like, I kind of felt like we were too, it was too mainstream and too, you know. Uh, but I agree. I can go back and listen. I, I really loved Soundgarden. I like Chris Cornell's music a lot. And uh, his voice and his range amazing and everything singer. was really amazing. But um, I liked Kurt Cobain because he was a lefty and I'm a lefty and I play guitar. Um, I want to ask you about your playing. So can you explain when did me you... why it matters left-handed, right-handed? What do you mean? Like, okay, piano, you, you, there's no left-handed, right-handed, right? Guitar, one, both hands do complicated things. One hand fingers the neck, the other hand strong, you know, picks it's, the strings. It's what legitimately the same. In my, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but it's exactly like when you pick up a ball or a bat and you try to do something from a certain stance, you can't do it. And then you switch hands and you're like, oh, this feels comfortable to me. Like, hmm. I can't throw a ball lefty. I can't. Uh, I, I write lefty, but I don't throw lefty. I bat righty. Um, I play guitar lefty. I'm like you. So, I, so I, I bat. I play guitar righty, though. You do. See, yeah. when I picked up, when I first picked up a, even a, I mean, a right-handed guitar in a music store, I picked it up left-handed, and it just naturally went that way. And the person at the store was like, "You're holding it the wrong way." So I had to flip it over and try to hold it. And to this day, I can't even like handle a pick in my right hand it was just something that and i couldn't afford my parents couldn't afford a, a, another guitar so we bought the cheapest one in the store and i just played a righty upside down and wrong and out of tune for years but i just that's what i you know just started doing and playing with and then once i got a lefty guitar i'm like there we go that's it so that made well, complete sense my, my son is right-handed he's four but he's been he's been picking up a guitar left-handed for a while and I and I made him flip it over uh, because he's right-handed. Is there's no? I think yeah, but it's like just like if a pitcher's lefty, they're more valuable. I forget. He doesn't need to play the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> when did you When did you first pick up the guitar and start playing? Uh, I saw, I started playing late. Actually, I started playing like at around ten. That's not that late. It, uh, did you take lessons? Did, did your folks make you take music lessons as a kid? I took um, I took uh, like a year of lessons. Guitar or piano? Gu guitar. Or? Guitar. guitar. Did uh, did your dad teach you? Did he, you pick he, it up because he because he played? Uh, probably, but he he tried to teach me, but I I I was not you know some parents some kids just don't want to hear it from their parents. Right. And very quickly he realized that that this wasn't we would be fighting, so he hired a teacher for me. You play um, more rhythm I, I, when you're playing with the band here. You play more of a of a rhythm guitar. Um, are you a intricate soloist at home? Are you? Do you put on music and try to maybe, 
you know, play solos over what you're listening to, or are you? Have oh you yeah, always I, been I, more I'm, of a- I'm 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 very uh, comfortable playing, you know, melodic, you know, know the scales very, and know the yeah. yeah. I just when we play here, first of all, we're not playing many solos, but um, sometimes people will, will will peel something out. I've noticed. Yeah, but, but I'm I'm by far the guy who holds the rhythm the best. Yeah, in no, so that's why yeah. I, I you just know the strength. And, and, and you know, that's well, what, it's really you know the people people on the like. The solos, solos are usually the most boring part of a song, unless they're really, really good. Yeah, and 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 solos are usually the part of the song which are which are done to either to please the ego of the musician who wants to play a solo, or because it's just like a cliche, like oh now we have to do a solo. Mm-hmm. So I don't, but you know I never really liked that. So I, I try I try not to have very many solos when we play at all, unless like Nick's. Nick Casarino's with us, and he's yep. and he's like a, an amazing virtuoso solos. But even then, I try to keep it short because um, to, to, for a solo to be good, it, it also needs the band kind of to have an opportunity to open up, like right. to really open us. And part of the reason you re- respond to some solos is that the band can just groove harder uh, than they can while somebody's singing, so that gives the song some drama. But in a very small ensemble, we're just playing with just two guitars. Uh, you can't you can't get that much out of it. So right. it's just really like one ride through the through the song. Yep. And we we go back. Yeah. And this is such a this room has great acoustics and great sound, and uh, it's always great to see you guys playing in here. Do you have a? We play these great guitars by by uh, I was Rick, gonna, Rick Turner. Who I was going to ask you what guitars you. Yeah. yeah. Well, these the acoustic player, the Renaissance guitars by Rick Turner. Rick Turner. Invented Jerry Garcia's guitar and uh, the Alembic bass. The Alembic bass, which this Phil Lesh was yeah. uh, so a huge is, fan of. So, uh, so Rick Turner is uh, the guy, and he, he, I'm actually, I, I met him because I, I, I got one of his guitars and I wrote it, an instrumental thing, and I, I played it at the Underground years ago, and I had a video of it and I sent it to him. I said, "Listen, I really love your guitar," and I, and I just sent him the video, just. You know, because it was his guitar. And he liked it, and he put it on his website. No kidding. Next to, um, what's his name from Fleetwood Mac? Uh, 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 why am I drawing a bike? Uh, famous, you know, uh, guitarist from Fleetwood Mac. You don't know his name? No, I'm going to let you think of it. I know it. I'm going to let you think of it. Oh, wait, wait. No, go for it. Anyway, I don't want to draw a blank, blank his name. I know, I know his name like the back of my hand. Anyway, so if you go to, if you go to his website, it's me and the guy, guy from Fleetwood Mac singing Landslide. Singing Landslide together. If you could play with one musician, like sit and play with Alive or Dead, who would, who would it be that you'd play with? If you could sit and, and, and jam with someone. Oh, it would have to be like Paul McCartney. Would it be? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would have to be. Because, yeah, because first of all, he would just want to play songs. Like, I don't want to play with some fancy-schmancy musician, you know, and accompanying some guy. And he would, he would like to just sing songs and sing in harmony and whatever it is. So that would be the best. Someone that would be a little more campfire-y. Yeah, but, 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 but still at a very, very high level, you know? Of course. Absolutely. Um, oh, my God. Lindsey Buckingham. <laughs> I didn't want to give it to you. Uh-huh. Um, now, real quick, I know I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, you know, you now have... The Cellar, The VU, The Fat Black Pussycat, three killer venues for stand-up that, you know, I perform at. A lot of other comics perform. We love it here. Um, I think one of the things that we like the most about this this club, I personally like, 
it's timeless. It kind of has this feel of like when you're in this room. Hank Williams also. I'd like to play with Hank Williams. Okay, Hank go Williams. Ahead, I'm trying ahead. to get sentimental for Christ's sake. Ahead, no. okay. <laughs> like, there, there's something about the rooms that are timeless. Like you walk in and it's like there's a, there's a nostalgia, but it's not a... It's not a sappy thing. It just is the vibe here. Is that on purpose or is that something that, you know, does this, when, when you're here and you grew up here, is this something that like. Yeah, yeah, it is on purpose. It's on purpose uh, in, 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 in that aesthetically, um, and I think this was in my family, we were always kind of a uh, skeptical and, and allergic to what was trendy and whatever it is and the the things which are timeless like stone and wood and brick and and uh, uh, beautiful colors and things like this um, mellow things uh, they they never go out of fashion and they actually seem to work better people are more comfortable in these things, and I, I, I imagine somehow that's primitive in a way, you know. But these kind of like these places that try to reinvent the comedy club in a more modern look and a more modern feel with more modern materials, and what, I think they always flop. Yeah, there's if it ain't broke kind of thing. Yeah, no, I just don't think people are comfortable. Like, um, there was a famous guy who owns a lot of famous restaurants and who opened tried to open another steakhouse. And most steakhouses, you know, have wood paneling and, you know, the kind of things we expect steakhouses. Yeah. But this one was going to have marble and, 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 and it, it bombed. Yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, Just that's not the, the atmosphere people want. Yeah, but, I hear and, you. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm very, very, very um, skeptical of bucking to any trends. <laughs> gotcha. So I, I, I think that'll always come back around. That's awesome. Um, is there anybody out there now that you would like to go see live musically? That you haven't seen, let's say. Uh, well, I have seen, but I like to see her whenever I can. Allison Krauss, she's amazing. Who is just and, and the musicians that in you know in that band, just unbelievable. Union Station, and um, who else? I wanted to see Fleetwood Mac when they were on tour. I didn't get to see them. I've never seen them. None. That's why I can't couldn't remember Lindsey Buckingham's name. <laughs> I don't know. Who, who would you like to see? We were kicking around going to that Bruce, like going to see Bruce on Broadway, you and I. Yeah, I would go see that. I've I seen would, Bruce, but... I've, I, I've never seen Bruce, and I have an uncle that's a huge Bruce fan, and uh, I just love that he's still out there just putting on a four-hour concert, sweating his ass off. Like, to me, that's just, from a performance standpoint, it's it's pretty incredible. And, he's amazing. And, I'm not a huge Bruce fan, but he's amazing. Uh, this, it's He's one of those where, like, the songs I love, you can't beat those songs and i'm a i'm sappy in the way that like i think like my hometown is one of the most amazing songs yeah, ever I and i think it's very and i'm on fire i'm on I fire like, is great it's such a great song the and li- I think lyrics that, are really good that too. might be one of the it just reminds me of like a steamy humid night and you know you're just laying awake and it, it's i think we've all kind of been there i like the songs that you know we've all been there i think that that's really neat when like you can listen to it and it's got this universal story that's uh, that is being told. Right, don't laugh and you can cut this out. Never, no. I would like to see Sade. I'm cutting that out because <laughs> <laughs> it has that. She has that one album, Lovers Rock. Have you ever heard that album? Which I think is really a masterpiece. Smooth operators on that. right? No, no, it's not. On, it's, it's after that. It's it's like you like the early. You like early shot. No, no. I'd like this one record, Lovers Rock. Okay, but, but I, I mean, I mean, I love this record. Like every single song. Really. I'll check it out. It's 
it's it's it is fantastic. Maybe you're turning a bunch of people on to. Uh, there's going to be a. It's a, a huge a record. Spike I mean, and, and yeah, but I'm sure a lot of my listeners aren't too. The, the record is so huge. She, I think she recorded it twice. One, she actually <laughs> re-released it live. The very same record because people love she this record so it, much. She did the same start to finish live. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, because that's how much people love this record. Um, I would like to at this point. I, I'm excited to go see some new. Smaller. Did you used to go to Wetlands when it was open? Yeah, well, I was a kid. I, I went, you know, at a, I, we we I went early on. Saw Blues Traveler there. I, th- I think Spin Doctors probably and Blues Traveler were in the same. Did Spin you used to go work? there? No, Spin Doctors used to play on Bleecker Street a lot. I I saw them there. Was there anybody that like? I mean, uh, people are in and out of here all the time. From just the other night, Madonna was here, and you know, I've seen De Niro, Leota, whoever. Have any musicians like crossed your path where you're kind of like? Have you been starstruck by anybody? Well, I mean, you're around the biggest of the biggest most of the time. So has anybody, like, just floored you? Yeah, well, Prince used to come down and, and see the band in the underground a lot. Really? And um, that, was, that was the most, oh, that was the biggest effect I've ever seen somebody's presence in the room affect everybody in the room you're kidding me yeah, it was there was just a with oh, the oh, people that have performed here i, I, I mean i'm not questioning you, know, you know, I, no actually no like in i mean when prince walks in everybody is just like i, I don't god know. walked in the room yeah i mean and nobody can everybody's just like trying not to look and try it's so and i and i did have that feeling because prince i was a huge prince fan for we didn't talk about prince i was a huge yeah. prince fan and again, Prince was. Did you have a certain of, era that you liked more than less? Like, did you like Purple Rain? Did you were you more yeah, into the later my, stuff? It was my my Prince era was like started with 1999, and then through Purple Rain and Around the World in a Day, and then there were like two albums out at Sign of Times, and then it, then it stopped. then he became the artist known as yeah, and then then I began to lose it. Like I buy every this happens like how many how many shots do you give your favorite artist? Before he's yeah, he's done. Yeah, you know, I'm like that with Bowie, where like I I love eras of Bowie, like the Aladdin scene, Diamond Dogs, kind of low, Man Who Sold the World, the weird early stuff. I'm I'm heavily into right now, but you know, for a while it was it was like the '80s ish strange stuff that started to get like Tin Machine and that era. I, I was into that. for a little bit, but I was into it for uh, just a, a period, and that's why I like the. The, you know, we talked about the Grateful Dead, and I'll, I'll kind of try to wrap it into a but did bow you, did here. Did you like Black Star? I did. Did you know about some of the, like the weird, the weird coincidences with that shit? So Black Star is a medical term for a, a lesion on like a cancerous lesion. So if a if a doctor's talking to another doctor, they may say there's a black star on his lung, and that's like, the, the, so so I feel like that might be a little bit of a. Uh, I have a theory that Bowie went out on his own terms, like that he he killed himself. Yes, I don't mean it in committed suicide. I, I don't like that. I think that I am all for like uh, compassionate end of life stuff. Like if you know you're, it's, you have a terminal thing, why fight it? Just I think I mean it was on his birthday. He released the album, the first verse of that was a "Look at me, I'm in heaven." He releases it on his birthday weekend. That end of the weekend, he's gone. They did. A, they they cremated him faster than they could do an autopsy. I think that it was kind of you know something that happened quick. But sounds plausible. Yeah. So I feel like. Um, but but with him and with Prince, it's always like like you can 
take dive from different chunks and it's like it's like liking 10 different bands and that's the thing i like about the grateful dead is you've got that bluegrass you've got that folk you've got psychedelic disco dead in the 70s things like that so um you like the disco dead in the 70s i like shakedown street uh. i like estimated profit and uh some of those songs turned out to be live staples that i feel when also i think the band reached a point where they were collectively together good and also it could have been the drug of choice in that era may have had it was coke fueled pre-heroin jerry garcia which you know but I, I i definitely um if i could see anybody right now i think uh i'm a big I, i'm sorry i listen to the shins quite a bit if you listen to them they're they're pretty great uh good songwriting james mercer I'll give you some because I think you'd really like it. He's uh, a very good songwriter. (laughs) Noam, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) 